A warm welcome to the Agile Gorilla podcast. The Agile Gorilla is a collective of experienced M&A professionals located in Europe, the US, Asia, and the UK. We know each other professionally and personally, having worked on many deals around the globe together. So today we're talking about the uh, law firm merger between Alan and Overy and Sherman and Sterling. Um, we have a conversation which goes everything from the culture and the differences that exist between these two firms to the strategic intent to what might be sort of key drivers around how we get the partners moving forward and what might ultimately kill or make this thing happen. A merger of convenience. Thanks, Ben. Hi, Paul. Hi, Abe. Good to see you guys. Um, so, uh, the nice summary episode today, talking about law, law firm mergers. So, there was one that I saw which hit the headlines, uh, which was Alan and Ogilvie with Sherman in the US. Are there any others uh, that happened recently? I think that's the big one because it's that cross-border US access that um, really hasn't been done since Clifford Chance bought Rogers and Wells, a, a deal that I was close to uh, and saw the aftermath of. So it'd be quite interesting to see how this looks different from that. Um, I think that, you know, it continues to consolidate as a sector and this is, as a sector, it's going through a huge amount of change. Who wants to sell us off? Anyone got an immediate thoughts that they want to kick us off with? Yeah, so that deal, the, the Rogers and Wells deal was, I think, you know, even in the eyes of the senior partner post that period, an unmitigated disaster. And the reason why it was an unmitigated disaster is they didn't really know what they were buying. Um, they ultimately, and, you know, Clifford Chance was a significant corporate um, M&A law practice. Um, it ultimately bought itself a, a litigation business uh, in terms of Rogers and Wells. That's really where the core strength of the business was. Um, and the two cultures clashed horrifically. Uh, from pretty much day one. Uh, it was actually followed by a further deal that uh, Clifford Chance did with a, a company called Punda in Germany, which was equally pretty horrific. So they went from, from you know, being significant magic circle firm with a bit of a presence around the world to really trying to expand very quickly uh, around the world. And then it sort of stopped after that. How long ago is this? Uh, so this is, a, this is about 10, 15 years ago. So it's okay. literally the last time anyone's done anything, certainly from, because obviously the, the, the uh, you know, the great opportunity was to try and merge those magic circle firms in the, very much based in the UK with the Wall Street firms that have all the presence in the States. That's always been the, the rationale behind doing this process and uh, and getting it done. And, and, and I think what's, you know, what's really interesting about that is that, I mean, if you think about the sector, just from a bit of context perspective, what, what matters in this sector? Well, there's really only one thing that matters, which is people, and, well, two things, people and clients, and the two are completely interconnected with each other. There is nothing else. There's no other asset, really, in these in these organisations that you're trying to, to merge. And the second thing is, um, for all their protesting of, of, uh, of overlap and synergy, um, you know, there isn't much physical integration that's going to be taking place here. I mean, Sherman's got a tiny little office in London. I, uh, you know, Alan Overy's got, a, you know, a presence in the States, but it's small. Um, it doesn't really do the same sort of level of work that Sherman does. So the overlap is really, really small. Um, so you're talking about sort of a non-physical integration in a people-led business, um, which, you know, presents some quite significant uh, challenges from my perspective. The third thing is that the corporate 
environment and the culture of these two firms then becomes really critical because it really requires cooperation at a partner level and further down the organization for them to actually get anything done together. And it's interesting because often these deals are predicated, predicated on the basis that um, we're going to get all these these new opportunities with clients um, that we don't have access to at the moment. Well, you know, clients have in the last 10, 15 years moved on significantly in that they they have you know a very significant and very important procurement strategy, which even if you were to merge the two major providers, they'd have to go and find a third or a fourth, right, to 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 compete with them. So they're almost driven away from the the opportunity of getting more with those clients um, than than perhaps you might um, expect. I think I, you know I've done a few law firm mergers uh, before. Um, but those are some of the key things that I think yeah. we're going into. I think one more, one last dimension, which is worthwhile talking about, and I've talked about this before, which is that the unit in a law firm merger is typically the group that's assembled around the partner. Mm. Yeah. So we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of people. We're talking about little groups of, you know, often 15, 20, mm. maybe 30 people that have a resort, an income source that comes from the partnership, the partner and, and these individuals um, live and work with each other uh, and become the primary driver of this organization, um, of, of the integration process. And so this is not about persuading senior partners and managing partners that this is a good idea. This is about persuading a very significant and large partnership across both businesses that this is a good idea that they want to cooperate on this process. I did a deal a few years ago where the hurdle was you need to get 100% partner approval. I don't know what it is in this situation, but it led to a whole different set of dis of behaviours uh, around how do we manage this integration process just because of that very high hurdle rate. So it's not something that gets done in a little boardroom. It has to be socialised and worked, um, you know, at, at a at a pretty detailed level uh, with people who have lots and lots of vested interests. Thanks, Ben. And so, Paul, I'm really interested in your take in a second on Mittelstand and how this relates to almost, you know, everyone having to approve a merger. But Abe, let's hear from the other side of the pond. I mean, do you have any view from the US on, on how this is perceived? Yeah, I think uh, just a couple of things. I mean, if you think about the, the, there are four or five reasons why professional services firms merged in the first place, because they, you don't have the traditional scale economics and things like that that you would do because the rent doesn't really go down. But historically, if you read the press releases and they're to be believed, there are sort of four or five reasons. One is clients are becoming more global. So firms that serve them have to become more global. The other is um, big deals, transactions, complex litigation, requires scale because it involves multiple it may involve multiple partners in multiple specialties or jurisdictions and so historically small you know there are a very small number of firms who could really take on the biggest and most complicated cases so scale helps the third is is i think what ben talked about the network so ben as a partner knows somebody who could refer business to me and vice versa so we both benefit and uh about two decades ago, I did a project when I was in management consulting of a law firm, and the key success driver, and this is the only thing I remember from this project, I think, was for a law firms that are corporate law firms, was profit per partner. And the higher profit per partner, the more naturally compensation is, co higher compensation leads to better recruiting and things like that. And the argument has been made that all these things improve profits per partner. 
the but the one problem, and if you look at actually the uh, uh, case studies on disaster or cautionary tales around these mergers, it leads the one thing that everybody talks about that's that's the problem is uh, the cross subsidies involved. Inevitably, the bigger the firm, um, there are going to be some groups that are fast growing or ex exciting, but they don't produce a lot of money. And then there are mm -hmm. other groups that produce a lot of money. And since partners expect their the benefit of their work to get compensated, you know, to result in compensation to them, they hate it when people making money subsidize people who aren't, especially when one group is growing faster and the other is not. So usually it's the slow growth but profitable groups that are subsidizing the fast growth, but unprofitable groups. And that results in resentments and compensation issues and departures because the profitable people basically disappear or leave or threaten to leave uh, because they don't want to subsidize the ones who aren't. And is that the lockstep kind of payment scheme that you've um, I hear about where is all partners actually get the same pay regardless uh, depending on their seniority and that meant that they couldn't pay the really high achievers as much as they needed to because everyone was in lockstep with everybody else just on on lockstep it has changed dramatically in the last 10 years or so um so we don't really have a lockstep anymore in most partnerships they're more um they are it's called what we call modified lockstep so lockstep concept of lockstep for those who don't understand is that every year as a partner you get a, an, a small amount of equity added to your pot which is basically related to the growth of the business uh, and your and your seniority within the organization uh, very little things get in the way of that so your your profit per equity partner the the, the little the the denominator of that um, grows every year with very little intervention from you. It can get bigger, but it can't ever get any smaller. Um, modified lockstep uh, has changed that actually quite dramatically where there is still a driver upwards, but if you perform badly, uh, you can get, you can, you can even become de-equitized, uh, which is happening more and more um, uh, as an organization. So, so there's some change there. Okay, cool. Paul, what are you thinking? Well, yeah, I think on what Ben was saying right in the beginning, which is that these these mergers of law firms and services uh, is about people. So we're not talking about processes that can be improved or economies of scale and things like that. And even for um, mergers that are, you know, with sort of real hardware products and so on, I always raise the question, you know, what is there an alternative to merging? You know, if you merge, you've got to integrate, you have to align your processes, which is probably a zero-sum game, uh, particularly in partnerships. They might have some very different styles, um, which are good for their market. And I'm just wondering if if the question is access to the markets, um, why don't you sort of organize a you know, collaboration, a sort of network? Uh, you know, if you're strong in Europe, you need somebody who's strong in Latin America or whatever. Well, who's who's the key, you know, who's the key player down there or in the States or in Canada or in Asia? Uh, without going through all the complexities and the uh, the distraction of an integration, particularly if it's going to impact things like um, remuneration and so on, then you're touching a sacred cow. Um, and it can only end up in a fight, I think. Yeah. I think that, and that what that touches on for me is this, what you're really doing with the expansion is you're trying to get through the integration and get a, a feeling of trust, I imagine, between the partners, as in they're willing to work together, they're willing to refer, they're willing to share money, they're willing to cross-sell uh, and act as a team and go to market. 
Uh, and if you, you know, just because you're as part of the same partnership doesn't mean by default you're going to willing to do that. And that happens across all consultancy firms, you know, whether uh, that's kind of accountancy or management that that as the, the organization scales, it becomes harder and harder to get the cross selling working and the alignment to the incentives that you talked about. Abby. Yeah, I, I think just to pick up with Paul, one of the experiments on this point, Paul, it is it, it is being tried now. Um, as I understand it, Dentons, which was a mid-sized London-based law firm, is now the world's largest law firm by number of lawyers. And it was accomplished through a roll-up, in effect, of law firms around the world. In some cases, they were truly merged. But in most cases, and I would need to go check the facts on this, uh, they are an affiliation that operates under a common brand, the same way, if you remember, we talked about with E&Y, where it isn't a centrally controlled single unit, but rather almost a, uh, a federation of, of different law firms. But they, but they did adopt a common brand because then it makes it easier for clients because then they don't have cross referrals between companies A and company B. It's just all company A. Yeah, I think that's that's very true. Um, it, I know the firm you're talking about, and they have expanded dramatically. And there are a few actually out there that you know very clearly state that they have got a. There's no sort of central location. They are very much local, decentralized brands. I think a couple of other things I wanted to quickly just touch on from an integration point of view, and perhaps some of the peculiarities about law firms uh, and where this becomes really important is that you know again this is a change but 20 30 years ago um uh, uh law firms really there were two classes of citizens there were the lawyers and then the, those people who sat within the enabling functions um uh, and that that division you know often meant that you couldn't actually um uh, as a you know as a C C the CFO or the CEO of a business you weren't a partner in that business you were a paid executive probably quite well paid but a paid executive and it was a really dis clear distinction between the two things it has started to change and and there is much more uh emphasis um put in those support function areas and in particular in in a merger exercise it's those functions that are starting to that probably will feel the heat more than anyone else so the significance of experience in running you know a global finance function which is now quite you know sizable um you know a global a global knowledge management system which is again quite such technology um where you're trying to you're trying to link together quite a significant number of very and demanding clients internally who aren't necessarily very technology uh, um, enabled in terms of their mindset or anything else. Um, those things become really important. And the extent to which um, the people who run those functions have got um, the skill set, the experience, and the uh, seniority, perceived seniority within the business uh, to be able to deliver those things uh, becomes a very significant factor as to whether you succeed or fail. Um, I think that's one thing. Second thing, I was just going to talk on the culture specifically around Shearman and, uh, and Alan Overy. And it is quite interesting because it's it's one of those things that people have talked about a lot. You know, Shearman itself is not, you know, a firm that's probably, it's a firm that's probably been on a, on a slightly downward trend for a while. It still has a significant M&A practice, but it's not, you know, it's not probably one of the top firms um, in, on Wall Street anymore. Um, and that has led, and maybe it's also perhaps part of the inherent culture, of a... Uh, of the, the sort of manifestation of that 
that little partner unit, which is almost an eat what you kill type approach to uh, to how they work with their with their teams and what they generate from an income point of view. That is very different from Alan Overy, where uh, in each group, you know, succession planning is a critical part of it. There's a really much a sort of custodian sense of it. In fact, you look at the um, retirement ages in in Alan Overy, it's around 55 in Shearman's around 65. So you're talking about 10 years difference where people are fundamentally forced to leave the organization. Um, so that makes a big difference. Hmm. So for me, there's, there's a, a kind of a wider kind of common picture here of around how you enter the US for a non-US player. If you are a, a major profitable US business, how would you expand profitably overseas? And it, it sounds like Sherman tried to do that, but but failed to make those overseas um, offices uh, profitable. Uh, and that's the fundamental challenge for both sides of the pond. One trying to scale globally and, and, and not quite succeeding. The other trying to get a foothold in the US um, and all routes tend to lead to failure. I, well, one of the things that I, I think that, you know, I know both parties have been looking for mergers. There was a, a rumor or it was announced even that, uh, that Sherman was going to merge with Hogan and Lovells at one point, mm. and that got scrapped. And I know uh, Al A&O was looking to enter the U.S. with uh, Ovel O'Melveny and Myers several years ago, and that didn't work out. And so to some extent, these are both people who tried other alternatives and finally found one that works. And I think to some extent, clearly here you have the geographic, over, uh, the, the distinct geographic footprint that helps that in both in in certainly the uh, Sherman uh, Hogan's thing, there was a lot of overlap. So you'd have individual partners sort of basically competing against each other, you know, for the same clients. And so to some extent, I, I guess, you know, one of the things, David, that you talked about that I'd like to dive into is one of the pieces, if you think about what really makes a law firm or any professional services firm, what's the capital? What's the sauce? It's basically client relationships, expertise, trust among the different partners. And, and actually, I'd, I'd add a fourth, which is recruiting, um, meaning the ones who can get the best law firm, uh, law school graduates are the ones who tend to prosper uh, more because you can really delegate more. Um, but one of the things that I've never heard anybody spend a lot of time talking about is what does a merger do to the trust between partners? And it's trust, you know, that a partner won't compete or steal a client. It's trust that if I hand a, a sensitive piece of business to a partner, that that partner has the competence to really execute it well so my client relationship doesn't get damaged. And then it's the trust that, you know, you could sort of work together without sort of, uh, you know, getting political um, and things. And I don't know that there's any science to it, but I wanted to ask all of you, what what do people do to engender this trust other than have cross-team cocktails and things like that? And then, then just let it let people work with each other and see what sorts out, which seems like a very um unstructured way to engender this. Yeah, let me let me uh let me start on that. So the, as I said earlier on, the, the interesting thing about this deal is that you need partner approval. You know, the reason why EY failed was because they didn't get partner approval, right? So this is this is not a this is not something that's done in the boardroom and then uh, opined upon everyone else. So you need that. So 
if you think about that as a as a key step in this process, and then what what do you do as a as a, a senior partner or a managing partner who's keen that this deal takes place? Well, you st- you need to start to segment your customer base, your your partners in this case, uh, and decide who wants what and how do we respond to their particular issues around uh, off limits and around conflicts of interest in terms of people around you know the the a bit of a corporate pie or a market sector or or a, a, an aspect of, of of law that one individual's got a specialty experience in or knows more about than anyone else. So that whole conversation becomes a very personal, very directed conversation where you're effectively trying to get a vote from an individual and do that across a whole bunch of people. So in effect, you're almost starting to manage an integration process prior, prior to the vote not post the vote um, so that it's really clear who's going to stay with you on that journey, who who may or may not stay with you on that journey. And, you know, it may not be 100 uh, percent that they need, but certainly in Clifford Chance's case, it was over 70. It was a very high percentage that you need. And therefore, what we need to do with those who may have decided this is the end of their journey, they don't want to go any further. How do we how do we respond to them? So I think this is in the, there's it's it's an almost a sort of slightly democratic approach to to agreeing on integration process where you're starting to set out clearly what's in it for individuals what's in it for uh individual groups um uh, and how we start to deal with that whole conflict conflicts thing which makes a lot of sense fundamentally because you're gonna have to go to your client base pretty quickly and say we are uh, conflicted from working with you in this territory going forward or we can accommodate you with, you with this or whatever it is so that conversation is the first conversation that those partners will have with their clients when a deal like this gets announced so it's about if i understand you ben there's a lot of playing by the rules there what are the governance structures actually alignment on the vision what's the strategy where are we going um i suppose the question is what what else is missing then from that to create real you know create trust with those people i mean Paul, if if you for me, one of my uh, my views on mergers is even when you're merging two factories, actually the the synergies aren't from the combination of the two factories. It's the synergies from the people who operate the factories and the the willingness of those two people, the, the, those groups of people, to work together and trust each other and come up with joint plans. So there's there's a strong people dimension to even the most asset based uh, integration. How do you have you had any good examples of how you build trust between different management teams? I think it's a gradual process. Um, you start with some non-risky things, assume that it will go well until proven contrary. I think one difference here when you're talking about law firms and you know a service relationship is that um, if the trust ends up not being justified, um, then it will become immediately apparent to the client. Whereas if you're making a product which goes through a number of steps and you're collaborating with somebody, uh, if something goes wrong, it is not necessarily yet visible to the outside world. So I could imagine that for, you know, a senior partner something saying, well, yes, now I'm going to, you know, pass on some key piece of business or a key issue to Abby, and then Abby makes mess out of it. Um, my name is Muds towards my customer. So... I would assume that the building the, the building of the trust is, is more difficult and probably takes longer. So you're not talking about taking them away on the kind of uh, the military analogy type events or sporting kind of w- w- the idea that you take a group of people away and put them in extreme situations and that will falsely um, merge them. I think for me that, that uh, what I would say for Abby, going back to your question, is that 
it's about trying to get them a group of people to work on real client projects if you can get a group of a group of partners who can work on a real client need and actually to be honest it doesn't need to be successful but the story coming from it is really great it's got a great story and the story you can say about success and the client likes it actually that would be okay other people would start to want to get involved and feel like i want a bit of that would you have massive uh, team building exercises so that people could sort of get a, a, a gut feel for the way other people react? That's been done in some companies to build trust. I've seen some go disastrously wrong, but um, but uh, but it's one way of of instinctively um, understanding who you get on well with, where you sort of see eye to eye, or where you know there's a, there's a hat or someone. The conundrum. Paul, is that all of that work is done after the deal has been agreed upon. And so if it turns out that you can't stand or the cultures do clash, Tough there's luck. really nothing you can do about it at that point. You have to leave the firm or, or somebody. And so it almost seems that if I could wave a magic wand, it would be interesting to, and I don't know if this product exists or service exists, it would actually be interesting to do a pre-mortem some type of work to evaluate the cultural fit between different practice areas and groups with it across different professional services firms, because it would be so immensely valuable to say, look, we've studied in this case, you know, Sherman and Sterling and Allen and Overy. And for a variety of complex reasons, we think that there are enough frictions between the way the two groups would operate that you may want to reconsider or at least think about an alternative. Maybe the IP practice, the surviving IP practice is just from one and the surviving securities law practice is just from the other. But the way the firms work, the culture, the the sort of the, the cultural DNA does not mesh. And it's going to be, and, and in fact, the, the history of professional services firms probably suggests that you know, there is enough, uh, it's a 50-50 venture in many cases, right? A lot of the talent leaves because they, for exactly this reason, but I've never heard of anybody doing this, but I suspect somebody has tried. And I'd be curious to know if you guys understand the history of this. So you want to start a pre-marriage counseling service, Abby, do you? <laughs> or, or a uh, compatibility analysis or a cultural compatibility analysis. God, it's a bit like Myers-Briggs for companies where you say, oh, no, you're, uh, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I, I don't mean to be uh, flippant about it, but it does seem like it would be very valuable. Yeah, so so there, there is a Myers-Briggs for companies. Uh, it's been out there for quite a long time. Um, I suppose that your your um, your concept, though, Abby, rests on, on, what, on a... On a, on a a, a thought which perhaps I would challenge, which is that there is a consistent way of operating in any company that you maybe work towards. One of the experiences I had with um, with both the Adult Goddard and also the Pinsent Masons merger, which are two uh, golden circle firms now in the UK that have done really well, um, was that um, uh, each each little area was really fundamentally different. And, and actually, the key dimension that we we discovered. Um, uh, as being a, a, you know, a, a, the predictor of success for some of these practices in terms of how they worked together was the amount of money and time that the senior partners spent traveling to each other's offices. I know that sounds like a ridiculous thing, but actually fundamentally, this is a, a UK, these are UK-based businesses. Um, but uh, the, the, the practices that spent lots of time together 
made a much better fist of the integration than those that didn't, um, which I know sounds mm-hmm. incredibly simple. But uh, so I think firstly, um, you know, there probably are some cultural divides between a, a large Wall Street firm and a, and a UK firm. I think we talked about a magic circle firm. I think we talked about some of those earlier on. Um, but I think, you know, each of these practices is built in the in the image of its of its uh, creator, if you like. Um, and so it takes a bit more probably uh, to get under the skin of that and see how that they can cooperate and work together. Yeah. So, Abby, when you said pre- uh, pre-mortem, I thought you were going to say pre-nuptial. Um, yeah, and maybe, that got that, me thinking, maybe that's a, maybe that's a better <laughs> way to look at it. The um, but you, you do go from being single to being married without really dating for a long period of time in these mergers. Is there some kind of product where you artificially create uh, the merger without completing it and allow people to work together in a in a way? That, but I think I think that's what I was saying. Though, is I think that's exactly what happens. Is that the partners because the partner group is so significant in terms of the vote. They they you know if you think about our normal timelines, you've got sort of three months to, uh, you know, from from announcement to completion, and you know, a year and a half, five, ten years after that to integration, if you, depending on how long it takes or how awful it is. Um, uh, in this case, this situation, the 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 pre-completion period can be up to a year, because basically what you're doing is trying to galvanize all the excite all the partners to get together and agree on wanting to do it, right? So nothing's going to happen until it's not. There's no shareholder externally sitting there saying, "Yeah, I'm happy with this. I'm signing the piece of paper just because I, I can see what leverage I'm going to generate out of that." It, it is basically all about the partners who have to tick the box and say, "Yes, I approve this deal." So quite often that that uh, pre-completion period is driven as much by the the ability to get those partners on board as it is by anything else. But I think, but I think the basis upon which the partners vote, let's take, let's take this exact merger. I'm sure the various partners have met their counterparts in the other firm, but you basically have a few meetings, maybe a dinner, maybe a little bit of uh, uh, you know, outward bound weekend or something. But aside from that, then you go to a vote. Once they voted to, to pursue it, there's no going back. And so I think the amount of time they've had to really evaluate, especially given the uh, intoxicating environment of a pre-merger situation where it's very staged, it's always at like a fancy hotel or a resort where everybody gets together and they're hanging out by the pool. And as long as they don't get into a fist fight, the partners say, okay, well, I can work with these people. There isn't, and, and I think this this raises a question that I've certainly as a numbers person, have always uh, thought about, which is how do you, what are the dimensions around which you evaluate a culture, a firm's culture, and how do you think about whether that culture would fit with another culture? And, And this is especially true in professional services. It's true everywhere, but often you have IP and factories and assets and mines and things. So, you know, whether the cultures fit or not, is uh, in my mind often of secondary importance, although you guys would probably argue it's of primary importance. But here, there's nothing else. There's a bunch of laptops and culture. And uh, how do you even think about that? Well, so there are loads of tools. There are loads of tools on that, Abby, and we can definitely talk about some of those. Probably not on this podcast, but yeah, there are definitely tools that I've I've used in the past that I was involved in developing one of them. Um, uh, early on, as part of a sort of cultural due diligence process, which uh, which we can look at. The, 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 difficult, the difficulty is, you know, you measure the cultures, you see where the differences are, 
so what? You know, um, can you live with them? Uh, what would you need to, to do, a pressure or draw whatever, to, to make them converge? Is it important? Um, I've lived through a merger, a three-way merger, where the cultures were different, but on some dimensions, they were similar. And stupidly, they communicated, said, oh, well, look, we're very similar on these, and so on, uh, and not addressing the real point is where are you different? And if you're different, is it okay, or are you different incompatible? Yeah. yeah. There's no threshold, is what you're saying, Paul, right? There's no point at which you say this won't work or more. Every firm has difference. Every set of firms have differences and similarities, and it's a judgment call. It's I do think there are some dimensions that are more important than others. But again, I think we're probably drifting a little bit away from our law firm merger. But we should do a podcast on culture because I've spent all my life doing this stuff. It would be fascinating to go and do that at some stage. So, so if you think this all comes down to culture, you know, this is these are two people groups. And actually the synergies come from that culture because it becomes the trust. And that is what you're talking about, relationships. So, so I suppose my final question for you, Ben, around this cultural difference is, my take on any cultural assessment of an organization is it will be to a certain degree a bit like the personality profile of a person you know you get your personality profile of that person a person b and then you say are they compatible will they have a you know will they will their marriage last 50 years 100 years i bet there isn't a decent tool out there for people to actually say okay you can do personality profiles of the two but actually be able to predict if they're compatible and what will help happen for the union so, David, well, I'm going to quote you back. It's always fun to quote someone back their own quote, which is that uh, I think you once famously said to me, uh, having a, a cultural diagnostic is a bit like having the head, your head shown to you by a mirror at the end of a haircut. You know, it's all very interesting, but there's bugger all you can do about it at that stage, right? So I sort of like that a lot. And the, But the, the reality is there is quite a lot you can do about it at that stage. I, 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 would, I would leave one thing, which is that the, in my experience of having done this for a long time now, uh, the perception that great difference between cultures is more difficult than great similarity, I think, is a fallacy. I think the more similar cultures are, the bigger a problem it presents to an organization because they feel like nothing's changing. Whereas if you know it's going to be dramatically different, whether that's through, uh, you know, a cross-border merger where you're merging with a with a, a, a nationality, which is really fundamentally from different from the way it works. The, the compromise, it's really obvious that both organizations have to move and make a shift towards that. That's that's what I would say. But my closing thought on this, uh, David, is actually not a cultural comment at all. It's a comment that this uh, and, and this is this is uh, this is actually goes more to Abbey's world, basically, which I think this is a this is a deal which is flawed in its strategic ambition. And it was conceived of 10 years ago because actually where the world is these days is not between the US and the UK, it's in Asia. And to what extent does this deal offer an opportunity to expand and get close to uh, Asian companies that are starting to really maneuver and expand in the world? I just think it probably doesn't do that at all. So rather than buying a US firm, they should have bought a, uh, a Chinese firm or a, uh, a Hong Kong-based firm or something like that. Anyway, that was my last thought. I, I, I agree with Ben that this seems not in keeping with the global reasoning that every other firm seems to be following, which is we want to expand into the high growth markets of Asia or the global South, uh, or we want to extend into a new area, like you could envision IP or patent law and expanding into that saying, well, that's a fast growing segment this 
appears to be two firms that are sort of close to each, similar to each other, doing and corporate and, you know, doing corporate work um, that are sort of combining. And so you're right. It doesn't appear to be a strategic deal as much as a convenient one. Uh, a manager of convenience. I think they're just looking for scale with the impression that they can attract the mega clients just because they are big and quasi-universal and so on. Um, it would take some guts, I think, to to um, you know, merge with a, with a, with an Asian um, law firm where all the basics of law is like, you know, that's so different. Um, so obviously, it, got, it gives you access to that to that market, but. I don't know how long it would take them to understand what, what actually goes on in those markets. It's, uh, it's a different world. It takes more courage, certainly. So, yes, I, I, I'd, I'd second the thing. It's, it's, a, it's a marriage of convenience. Brilliant. Well, thanks, guys. We're out of time now. Great to talk to you on this topic and look forward to speaking again in a couple of weeks. Thanks very much for listening. We love hearing from you. If you've got any ideas, comments or critiques, please just let us know via Twitter or uh, LinkedIn. Thanks also to Samika for providing the music. See you soon.